America is deeply reactionary at the moment. Same thing can be said for the church. I think we have worked very hard to try to harmonize the Christian gospel in the American dream. We make a sort of Faustian bargain, a Machiavellian kind of end justifies the means. You're part of our tribe, and if you're part of our tribe, we'll defend you no matter what. And if you're outside of our, our tribe, then you're the enemy. They recast Jesus himself as this ultimate fighting champion. Jesus will not be a mascot for the elephants or the donkeys. Jesus is the lamb, and he's going to reign and rule. Every time the early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying, Caesar is not. Your baptism has made you an exile. You don't belong to this anymore. Political power drives everything. If you cannot criticize your political party, that's your civil religion. You will be respected. You will be in power. It was everything that they ever wanted to hear. The way of the lamb is always love. The way of the lamb is always peace. The way of the lamb is always grace. They say they're rejecting Christianity, but they're actually rejecting a version of American nationalism. I think one of the most important things for American Christians to perceive is that America is not a kind of biblical Israel, but a kind of biblical Babylon. Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. Today is also a Communion Sunday for us. If you'd like to take communion with us, just have a piece of bread and a beverage ready at the end of the service, and we'll take communion together. And this is already week three of our Lent series, Postcards from Babylon. It's based on this book of the same title, Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile by Brian Zond. And every week we're covering two chapters of the book in the sermon. And then the following Wednesday in our new online connect group, you can discuss those two chapters as you read along with us. They've already had two weeks. They're, they're having between 15 and 20 participants from various states in that online connect group so far. And the point of this book is that the earliest Christianity was countercultural to the Roman Empire, the time in which Christianity came to be, the time in which Jesus lived. And in this book, Brian Zond is wondering if contemporary American Christianity is countercultural in America or if it's just an endorsement of Americanism. And I think this book is really about the rise of Christian nationalism, this militant, uh, violent culture war fusion of politics in America and a weird form of Christianity mixed together in which folks believe that we're in a culture war. And we saw that at the Capitol on January 6th. And, and Brian Zond is challenging American Christians to see Jesus for who Jesus really is, to, to reread the Gospels and to discover uh, that Jesus is countercultural to Christian nationalism. In my view, that's what the book is really about, and it's a hard-hitting, challenging book. There are people who would read this book and would just throw it down, uh, 
because it's just too in your face. It challenges them too much. There are others, and I'm thankful for, for those of us for, for whom this is true, who will read the book and even if it's challenging, will allow it to provoke thought and, and make us think, to make us examine ourselves. As we've heard it said, the, the uh, unexamined life is not worth living. Are we willing to, to take a look at ourselves in the mirror and, and be challenged and be willing to grow? And this book is definitely a challenging book uh, because it's so emotional. We have a, a blurb in the chat uh, every week now uh, reminding us to, as we discuss and we want to honestly discuss how we really feel and what we really think, there's no point in pretending. We don't, we don't want to create hypocrites here who have to pretend that they agree with each other and everything. We don't want that. But as we discuss, it's not so much important what we say, but how we say it often. And so we just want to be respectful and loving in our dialogue. And we can be an example of what it means even to, to disagree agreeably and still love each other. So today we're chapter, uh, covering chapters five and six in the book. Uh, chapter five is in the time of tyrant kings. And chapter six is there's always some dude on a horse. Uh, it's, just, it's a brilliant title and when he discusses Palm Sunday. And I'm going to summarize those two chapters today. And then this Wednesday, you can read chapters five and six and, and be ready for this Wednesday in that online connect group and discuss your reading. So usually I like to start off with some kind of comment uh, just to get us involved. And if you would like to comment, you know, wherever you're watching here at well.online.church or at Facebook or um, First of all, I was tempted to make this the discussion question after Travis's sermon last week. How many of you would like to see Travis give more sermons? I think that's a pretty good discussion question. So I would, I would like that. I really enjoyed uh, Travis's sermon. Travis, thank you uh, for uh, your thoughtful talk last week. I really appreciated it, and I know a lot of us did. Um, and so I thought that would be a pretty good discussion question. But um, here's one if you would like to type uh, this into the comments. We're just getting started in the book. And so, you know, some of us have only read the first few chapters. Maybe some of us have read the whole thing. And so you could share anything out of any reading you've done so far in Postcards from Babylon. If you'd like to comment, uh, what is one thought you appreciate uh, from Postcards from Babylon so far? One little nugget you've picked up, one sentence, one quote, one thought, one insight you've had. In any of the reading, even if you've just gotten started or if you've read ahead and read the whole book, if you'd be willing to type this into the comments, what's one thing you've read so far that you really appreciate from Postcards from Babylon? Would you share that in the comments right now? I'm going to jump ahead a little bit for mine. My favorite insight in this book so far comes from chapter 7, when Brian discusses his view of Satan. Some of you are like, that's your favorite part of the book. Well, it is, because I think it's brilliant. In just a couple of pages, Brian talks about evil, evil in society, evil in the world, and the concept of, of Satan. And I think it was just a brilliant way of helping Christians understand what Satan is and what evil is. And a lot of what we're talking about in this book is evil happening in the world. So that's one that I would share. There are lots of others, but how about you? If you would share that in the comments, what's one thing that you appreciate about Postcards from Babylon so far? Now, Brian wrote this book in 2019, and chapter 5, the time, uh, In the Time of Tyrant Kings, is about an egotistical ruler who doesn't uh, care if their policies hurt the people they're supposed to protect because they only care about themselves. 
And then chapter 6 is about how those rulers lead people to commit violence and live with this constant militant, fear-driven, violent attitude towards other people. And he finishes chapter 6 talking about what Jesus has to say about that, or rather even what Jesus does about that. I love these two chapters. So first of all, back when Americans uh, discovered that we had tortured suspected terrorists after, the, after 9-11 and then the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Pew Forum on Religion conducted a survey of religious people's attitudes toward torture. Uh, it was conducted April 14th through 21st, 2009, and they found that 62% of white evangelical Protestants said torture can sometimes or often be justified. Religious people who attended weekly worship services supported the use of torture more than people who attended monthly worship services. And only 32% of people who seldom or never attended religious services said torture was sometimes or often justified. So get ready for this. The more often a person attended a church service in a white evangelical Protestant church, the more likely they were to support torture. In 2014, uh, the Public Religion uh, Research Institute found that 59% of white evangelical Protestants supported the death penalty. The highest support of any religious group, especially compared with only 25% of black Protestant Christians who support the death penalty. Boy, you see a contrast between white evangelicals and black evangelicals. In 2018, Pew Research found that by more than two to one, 68% of white evangelical Protestants say the U.S. does not have a responsibility to accept refugees. People who are fleeing violence from another country, here it's often from south of the border, coming up from Mexico or through Mexico, compared to 28% of religiously unaffiliated people who say we shouldn't support refugees. So I repeat, 68% of white evangelical Protestants in the United States said, no, we, sh we don't have a responsibility to welcome re refugees. Over two-thirds of white evangelical Christians in the United States says we don't need to welcome refugees. Two-thirds of non-religious Americans said we should welcome refugees, people who are fleeing violence. A Marist College PBS NPR poll conducted uh, on January 11th through 13th, 2021, found that 63% of white evangelicals did not trust the 2020 election results were accurate. And a similar number, 65%, did not believe the former president was to blame for the violence at the Capitol. Uh, the former president's approval rating when he left office was 31% among all Americans. Among white evangelicals, it was 62%. Exactly twice the percentage of all Americans. Now, this survey of information has been coming out for several years, the older stuff that I shared, and lots of people have been aware of that, which prompts some questions. Why would white evangelical Christians be far more likely to support torture 
the death penalty, more likely to refuse refugees, and support someone widely believed to be responsible for an insurrection attempt. Why would white evangelicals be far more likely to support those attitudes? And let's just cut to the chase. You don't read the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of Jesus about loving your neighbor and praying for people who persecute you, loving your enemies, turning, turning the other cheek when somebody attacks you. You don't read the Gospels and come away thinking, oh, we should torture people more. Oh, we should put people to death for crimes more. Oh, we shouldn't welcome refugees. It's it's difficult to understand how somebody could read the teaching of Jesus and come away saying, oh, we should attack the Capitol. Oh, we should be militant towards other Americans or people who aren't Americans and use violence or violent rhetoric to try to dominate them. It's just very difficult to see how somebody reads the teaching of Jesus and comes away believing those things. So why do a solid majority of white evangelical Christians support these things? Well, in chapter 5, Brian focuses on rulers, leaders, who lead people to believe these things and capitalize on their pre-existing beliefs. He focuses on King Herod. And Herod is also called Herod the Great. Herod was king over Palestine when Jesus was born. Palestine is now Israel. It's the land Jesus was born in. Herod was king when Jesus was born. And Herod the Great ruled for 33 years. He was largely responsible for creating an aristocracy in his country. He uh, created a ruling class of wealthy elites in his country. He built lavish structures using slave labor, including a palace called the Herodian, in which he tore down half of a mountain and built an artificial mountain next to it and made that his palace. I, I was there in January of 2012, and, and the Herodian, is, it looks like a, a mountain, and it has tunnels throughout the entire structure, secret passageways and tunnels for servants to travel up and down and pools at the top and, and fortifications. Why would you tear down a mountain so you can build an artificial one next to it? Because you can. That's the kind of power Herod had. He built a fortress next to the Dead Sea called Masada. He also rebuilt the temple. He ingratiated himself to the religious people of his country and used religion to gain their trust by building a powerful, beautiful temple. Herod was a master manipulator. He played the Parthians, who were the empire to the east, until they invaded Palestine and caused civil unrest in Palestine. And at that point, Rome gave Herod an army that he used to defeat the Parthians, and and Rome installed Herod as the king of the Jews. So he was appointed king of the Jews by the Romans who had, and this gets confusing, but they had already conquered Palestine in 63 BC. And then when the Parthians threatened Palestine, first Herod cozied up to the Parthians, but then he took help from Rome and an army. And then he led uh, the army against the Parthians to defeat them. So he was, and this is the key, he was seen as the protector of his people. 
and his ability to manipulate and, and then be installed as a client king by the Romans, he was seen as a protector of his people against their enemies. He uh, was uh, bloodthirsty. He had been in love with his wife, Miriam, until later he had his wife killed, along with two or three of his sons and other of her family members to prevent them from taking over his throne. He became seen more and more as mentally unstable and narcissistic. Uh, he, by the end of his reign, when he died, after 33 years, there were uh, uprisings that, that, uh, of violence that took place in the country because resentments boiled over. Things that had been you know, fomenting for so long, and people eventually resented him. But Brian talks about why is it that we, there, people like this, rulers like this, who don't really care about their people, who kill their own people, who build lavish palaces at the expense of their own people, and, and act in ways that actually go against the economic self-interest of their own people, why is it that, that so many people still support them? Rulers like this. Why is it that people will vote against their own self-interest and they'll allow a leader to take money from them, literally, and give it to other people? And, and you just scratch your head and wonder, why is it that so many people will support these narcissistic, violent leaders who lead them to you know, be militant and think that they're in a constant conflict. And how is it that these kind of rulers get support in the first place? Well, there's an old saying, the enemy of my enemy is a friend. So rulers like this will use fear and propaganda to create a common enemy. And they'll say, look, those people over there are threatening. And you should, you should be afraid of them. They'll stoke fear. And so let's all gather together and we'll take on that common enemy. And of course, the whole time, that ruler is just fleecing the people, taking money from them, hurting them in other ways. He doesn't care about them. He cares about himself. But they follow his leadership or her leadership because they've created a common enemy. I think you could easily make the observation that many white evangelicals in this country support leaders who don't even have their best interest in mind because they have a common enemy. If, if a person's goal in life is to own the libs because they, they believe they're in a culture war, then they will, they'll support a leader who owns the libs, even if that leader hurts them, even if that leader is not helping their own economic self-interest, even if they're having a harder time getting ahead because of policies that leader is putting in place, well, at least they hate the same people. That's one reason. And then another reason is, it's not really religion, even though Herod built the, you know, built the temple and ingratiated himself and used religion to gain the trust of the people. It's culture. And so as we see the rise of Christian nationalism, I, I use that phrase, Christian nationalism, because I understand that there, there are supposed Christian roots that these people are claiming. But I would say it's not really Christian. I would say it's culture. It's culture that comes from certain places in the United States, certain traditions in the United States, and we have seen that revived over the past several years. As I said a couple of weeks ago, there's a reason that there were Christian t-shirts and a Confederate flag in the riot at the Capitol on January 6th. We're seeing the revival 
of that culture that has been fused with Christianity, yes, but I would say it's more of a culture than it is about Christianity. Christianity is the older, more established, dominant religion in the United States. We're also seeing Buddhist nationalist terrorists, like in Myanmar. We're also seeing Hindu nationalist terrorism, creating unrest in India. Now, Buddhism is largely seen as a pacifistic religion that condemns violence in all its forms. And yet there are nationalists who are using Buddhism to fuel their cause. Hinduism respects life. There are, there are Hindus who won't kill flies because they're living beings. And yet there are nationalists who are using Hinduism, perverting it, using it as a weapon to commit acts of terror in India. I've said before, if the U.S. were a predominantly Buddhist country, you would see huge Buddhist temples across the Southeast Valley, and you would have seen Buddhist t-shirts and Confederate flags at the Capitol. All right? There are people who think religion is the cause of violence, and I'm not saying it doesn't play a part. I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But there, there are people who say religion is the cause of it, like there is something inherent within religion that causes people to be violent. Back in 2007, again, when America was, was fresh off the heels of 9-11 of and the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there was a, a renewal of anti-Muslim uh, sentiment in the United States, William T. Cavanaugh, an associate professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in St. In St. Paul, Minnesota, wrote an essay, an, essay, an essay entitled, Does Religion Cause Violence? And here, here's something that he wrote in the essay. For some religion and violence theorists, the contradictions are resolved by openly expanding the definition of religion to include ideologies and practices that are usually called secular. Certain belief systems like Islam are condemned, while certain others like nationalism are arbitrarily ignored. Put simply, here's what he says in the article. People who blame religion for violence are often just ignoring the secular reasons for that violence. So for example, in Northern Ireland, Ireland we're often uh, led to believe that the conflict is between Catholics and Protestants. Now, is there some truth in that? Yes, there's some truth in that. Religion is a part of their cultures and their cultures are clashing. More experts in the region would say, well, the Protestants tend to be loyalist to the United Kingdom, while the Catholics tend to want unity of all of Ireland. And so it is very much a political conflict. Religion is a part of it because religion's part of the culture. Religion is a part of the differences. But it's not primarily about religion. It's primarily about politics and resources and identity. The way people see themselves and who they identify with and the leaders they identify with. As Kavanaugh writes in the essay, their real religion is nationalism. And you can put another label in front of it, but it's a fact of, of, uh, of our world situation right now that that religious label in front of it is interchangeable. There are Christian nationalists, there are Buddhist nationalists, there are Islamic nationalists, there are Hindu nationalists. 
Kavanaugh says their real religion is nationalism. So I have a friend who is a, a great guy that I, that I love and respect, and he is a, he's a Christian uh, in the traditional sense of the word. He's a follower of Jesus. I realize that label Christian has been perhaps misused so much that it's hard to tell what it means now. But he is a follower of Jesus Christ, and he's a great person. And he continually struggles with the question of whether or not religion does more harm than good. And whether he wants to be a part of a, you know, quote-unquote religion uh, and, and be a follower of Jesus Christ because of the way that religion is used in the world. He's always kind of struggling. Should I just, should I walk away? And so many have. We've seen the decline in, in you know, people who want to identify as Christians in the United States. And, and so he and I have, have had this conversation many times. And, and I've asked that same question of myself many times. I've had the same struggle. And so as we talk about this, we can share our views and, and where we're all coming from. And, and I tend to have a little bit of a different view than his. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we interviewed Pete Enns, um, and I asked Pete that question, you know, there are so many people who are wondering, can they, can they even remain a Christian or a follower of Jesus? Or if they do at all, like what should they even call themselves? And I know many of you asked that same question. And if you remember, this was Pete's answer. I said, what, what would you say to people who are wondering if they can even remain followers of Jesus or, or a part of a spiritual community, a part of a church? And, and he said, well, the actions of other people would, really, would be a really bad reason to leave. That was his, his kind of curt reply to that question. That the actions of other people who are perverting your faith would be a really bad reason to leave your faith. And in my conversations with my friend, that's how I come down when he and I talk about this. I tend to say things like, you know, religion is a lot like human beings. There, there is good religion and bad religion because there are, there are humans who choose to act in good ways and, and humans to act in evil ways. Or I'll say something like, religion is kind of like a guitar. The way it sounds depends on whose hands it's in. And so I would agree with Pete Enns, and I'm sure with Brian, that yes, there are rulers like Herod and like countless others throughout world history and like some in the United States right now who are using religion and using whatever else they can get a hold of to lead people to be violent and militant, to have a common enemy and to hurt those people. But those people, their subjects are willing to go along with it because they hate the same people they hate. And they have a common enemy together. But it's a perversion of real faith. It's a perversion of the teachings of Jesus or Buddha or the teachings of Hinduism uh, and so on. So if you struggle with remaining a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ, and you wonder if you should just chuck the whole thing and walk away because of, of the violence and evil that is committed in the name of religion. Chapter six, I think, is Brian Zahn's answer to that. Because chapter six is about what Jesus has to say. It, when leaders act this way, and the kind of situation we're seeing in the United States right now, Jesus has something to say 
about how we should respond when we see the rise of Christian nationalism. Chapter six is called, There's Always Some Dude on a Horse. <laughs> and Brian talks about his travels around the world and in Europe and, and even here in the United States and how in, it seems like in every city, there's a statue of that country's war hero on a horse. The, 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 the war hero is, is portrayed as this you know, strong leader who leads their people into battle and they're always on a horse because up until recently, horses were weapons of war. They're, they were war horses. Until the, the invention of tanks, horses were tanks. They were uh, the, the means of, of transportation for warriors who would do battle from those horses. And the horse became seen as a weapon of war. And Brian writes about how every human civilization has glorified war. And for five pages in the book, he lists prominent wars of history for five pages. If you haven't read that yet in, in, in chapter six, I encourage you to actually read every war. And it's five pages. And just take in the, the violence, the carnage, the grief, the death, the casualties, the wounds, the heartaches experienced by humanity throughout our history because of leaders who use violence and fear and create a common enemy and lead their people to be violent and nationalistic. And they just want perpetual war or, or violent rhetoric and propaganda like we see on certain cable quote unquote news shows where it's just all fear and trolling and culture war. And there are leaders who just use this constantly and the, the carnage and the pain that causes as Brian lists those prominent wars for five pages in the book. And then Brian goes on to say, most of us are easily impressed by glorious generals on their magnificent war horses or their modern equivalents like tanks. But Yahweh and his prophets are not. He gives examples of prophets like the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture, denouncing war and violence. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. But we live in this world in which religion is used by violent people to justify their violence. They use religion as a weapon against their enemies. They use the Bible as a weapon in a culture war to bludgeon people they think are different from them. They use religion to justify uh, trying to take over culture for Jesus. Like Jesus wants us to, to defeat these, these enemies that we, that we share in American culture or something. It's just this weird perversion of Christianity when religion is used as a weapon against their enemies. And when we interview Brian Zahn on March 28th, he's going to talk about chapter six because chapter six is about Palm Sunday. And March 28th is Palm Sunday when Brian is going to be with us. And there were people in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus using religion to justify violence. Some wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. Some wanted to kill members of the aristocracy that Herod had set up. Some people wanted to use violence to, to defend the status quo, like Pontius Pilate like Herod, like other leaders. And, and Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And he sends two of his disciples to get 
the colt of a donkey. And Jesus rides this donkey colt into the eastern gate of Jerusalem, down from the Mount of Olives, and it's called the Triumphal Entry. And it was believed, I mean, the symbolism is clear here, it was, it was believed that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And riding on a donkey instead of a war horse symbolized coming in peace. So Brian writes in chapter 6 about how Pontius Pilate would have rode into town from the western side on his war horse to keep the peace during Passover. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor over, uh, over that area. Herod was the king of the Jews, but Pontius Pilate was the Roman leader in the area. And so Pilate would have ridden in on a war horse, but Jesus rides in on the other side of the city. The city the Messiah would have entered. Uh, the side of the city the, the Messiah would have entered through. Not riding a war horse, but coming in peace on a donkey. Then Brian quotes Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Let's read. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's what Jesus says as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, symbolizing coming in peace on, on Palm Sunday. And what happened about 40 years later was the Roman Empire did come in and they leveled Jerusalem. And they chased 900 survivors to the top of that fortress Herod had built called Masada. And the Romans built a, an embankment, a ramp. For two years, these Jews who had been chased out of Jerusalem lived at the top of this fortress trying to hold out against the Romans. And for two years, the Romans built a ramp. When I was there in January of 2012, you can, I stood on top of Masada and looked down. You can see where the walls of the Roman army encampment was. And then there's a literal dirt ramp with who knows how many thousands of tons of dirt that the Romans continually built for two years up the side of the fortress to kill the last remaining Jews they, they chased out of Jerusalem. What Jesus says here came true about 40 years after this Palm Sunday. Jesus was making a statement to the people that is very much real world and political and practical right now where we are in 2021 America. Jesus is saying, if you want to live a militant, you know, violent culture war kind of life and see other people around you as your enemies and live in fear and follow leaders who don't care about you because they hate the same people you hate and you want to live like that, it will come back to bite you. Jesus said it another way. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. If you, if you watch so-called news channels that are just selling you fear and culture war politics and lying to you and talking about cancel culture all the time, and it's just this constant trolling and ginning up of anger 
and this militant attitude and seeing other Americans as enemies and people around the world as enemies and using violence against people around the world or using violence against people here or using violent rhetoric against them, violent words, just viewing other people as though they're your enemies for some reason. If you want to live like that, here's how it ends. It ends in all of that violence coming back on you too. There is no winner in war. Dwight Eisenhower said something to the effect of people who glorify war are people who have never been in one. Because there are no real winners. That kind of a life, following leaders like that and being violent and militant, always comes back to hurt you too. Which brings us to the way Jesus handled his faith being perverted by people who were, who were manipulating it, twisting it, using it as a weapon in a, in a culture war. People like Herod and, and the aristocracy and, the, and the, the ruling priest class. When Jesus saw his religion being misused, did he walk away? Did he say, well, you know what? I don't want to be identified with that kind of thing. I don't, I don't want people to see me as a part of that. So I'm just going to slowly back away and just chuck the whole thing. Is that what Jesus did? No. Jesus spoke out for the real meaning of his faith, even though he would be killed for it. Jesus was riding that colt of a donkey peacefully into Jerusalem to his death. Jesus would be crucified a few days later because he spoke out against these rulers and the way that his faith was being manipulated and used. He turned over the tables in the temple courts. He said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And Pontius Pilate and the other leaders and Herod, actually the son of Herod the Great, was, was ruler by the time Jesus was crucified. They saw Jesus as a threat and they quickly dispatched of him. It was his willingness to speak out for what his faith really meant that got him crucified. Yes, there are theological reasons for the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the immediate real-world events leading up to his crucifixion were that he spoke out. He didn't walk away from his faith. He didn't say to all the people who were perverting his faith, oh, will you win? To the people who were, who were manipulating God and religion in the name of God, and scripture and using it to create this violent militant attitude to just create a common enemy and, and manipulate their own supporters and blind them and make them that whole political game. Jesus didn't see that and say, oh, well, you win. I'll just slowly back away and I won't call myself a person of faith anymore. I'll just, I'll just walk away. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus spoke out against the people who were perverting his faith. In a time of rising Christian nationalism, it's time for thinking, open-minded, forward-thinking Christians, whatever you want to call it, it's time for those kinds of Christians to speak out. 
This past Tuesday, uh, we had pub theology and, and our discussions in pub theology and in our online connect group, they're always confidential. We want those to be safe spaces where people can share. And so I'm not going to share what other people said. I, I want to share what I said in our pub theology this past Tuesday, because our discussion question was, in a country that believes in the separation of church and state, what should the role of Christians be in government? We see people calling themselves Christians who want to create a theocracy in the United States. We've seen that my entire life. But you know, in a, in a country that believes in the First Amendment, we don't establish a religion and the separation of church and state, what should the role of, of people of faith be? We, well, I believe, I'll speak for me, the First Amendment, the separation of church and state doesn't mean that we just don't get involved in public life or politics. That's not what it means. It's not, it's not what it's ever meant in the history of the United States. Uh, the people who founded this country were not all, no, they were not evangelical Christians the way that televangelists would have you believe. Some were deists. Some were really not people of faith. Some were committed Christians. And, and other, there were other people of faith involved in the founding of this country as well, not just Christians. But there was never this idea that, that faith should not be a part of the public forum. What it meant was you don't establish a, a religion. We, we came from a country in England where there is a state church. Well, we don't have a state church in America. We believe in the separation of church and state. But what I said in pub theology as we were discussing that is, I think it's time. I think it's time for thinking, more open-minded people of faith to speak up. And to say, even in a pluralistic country where people of all faiths and no faiths are welcome, to speak up for that value, that Muslims are not our enemies, people of other religions are not, Buddhists are not our enemies, people of other faiths are not our enemies, people of no faith are not our enemies. To first of all say that, and also say, because of my faith, I believe in human dignity. I believe in, in rights for people. I believe in rights for the oppressed. I believe in justice and righteousness. Not in spite of my faith, but because of my faith. I believe in democracy. I believe that everybody should have a voice at the table, not in spite of my faith, but because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Respecting people who have different faiths, respecting people who have no faith, but I think it's time for more and more thinking Christians to get involved in public life and speak out. I think it's time. I think it's time for a movement of thinking Christians in the United States to speak out against Christian nationalism. Now that includes speaking out for what we're for, like love and peace and, and human rights and dignity and equality and justice and righteousness, values that run throughout the entire Bible and, and values that any follower of Jesus should believe in. But we're living in a time that is forcing us to make a choice. And to stay silent is to be complicit. To coddle nationalists and just be quiet about what they're doing is to be complicit in what they're trying to bring to this country. Jesus did not stay silent. He spoke out. As Brian writes in chapter 6, when, when rulers like Herod and others were perverting his faith, for violence and, and this militant attitude, Jesus spoke out. And he, he rode into Jerusalem in peace, knowing it would cost him. Some of us have felt pressure over the past several years. Is this true of you? Let me ask you, have you felt this pressure to be quiet in the face of what is happening in this country?
I've heard good people, well-meaning people express it like this. You know, I, I just don't want to be somebody who's seen as talking about politics all the time. You know, my, my neighbor, my friend, my family member, people, my ch- whatever, work, they say these things that are just horrifying. Like, I, it's, it's fascism. It's nationalism. But I just, I just don't want to be the kind of person who talks about that all the time. I've heard really well-meaning people say things like this. Well, people over politics. And, and by people over politics, they mean good things. They mean, well, we should care about people. I just don't want to argue with people all the time about politics. I want to have relationships with people I disagree with. That's a good intention. But if people over politics means we're just quiet, when people express nationalistic, fascistic sentiments, often using the name of Jesus, to be silent is to be complicit and to allow them to do what they're trying to do in this country. And it's leading us down a very dark path. I want to challenge you this morning, and I'm challenging myself as well. To those of us who have felt like we should be quiet or we shouldn't speak out or speak out as much. Perhaps it's to people like us. Jesus was talking to and he said, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That phrase has been used in so many sermons to to, to mean different things. But Jesus was going to the cross in peace, speaking out against how people were perverting his faith. That's what he was actually doing in his ministry in the Gospels and when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Perhaps it's to you and me who feel pressured to be quiet. Like, well, you know, I just don't want to be political. I just don't want to have those kinds of conversations. I just don't want to be known for that. Perhaps Jesus is saying, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus was not silent. Jesus spoke up. For some of us, speaking up looks like joining organizations that, that do speak out of a place of faith and get involved in public life. I'm, I'm thankful for my friend Doug Paget, who leads an organization called Vote Common Good. I'm thankful for Reverend William Barber, who leads the Poor People's Campaign. I'm thankful for people like Reverend Jennifer Butler, who leads Faith in Public Life. And there are many other organizations. Perhaps getting involved for you and speaking out, like Jesus did, looks like connecting with one of those organizations. Maybe it looks like sharing books like this with family and friends. And saying, you know, I read this book that I think you just might, you might find it challenging, but I just wanted to share it with you. And, and sharing a book like this with them. Maybe it looks like posting on social media. Maybe it looks like trying to have conversations with people on social media, as hard as that is, as impossible as that seems sometimes. Some of you I've seen do that and, and do a really great job at it, at it trying to engage people on social media and, and get them to think in new ways about this, this, this weird perversion of faith that they have, they have grasped onto because that's what they've been fed through propaganda and media and from these leaders like King Herod in our culture. For some of you speaking out, maybe it looks like writing a book. Maybe it looks like giving a sermon. Maybe it looks like writing songs. Somehow God has called you and equipped you to speak out. But now is the time.
when Jesus saw his faith being manipulated and misused for militarism and violence, Jesus didn't walk away. He spoke out. So in chapters 5 and 6, Brian Zahn paints a picture of how the time of Jesus and our time are eerily similar. There are violent nationalists who are using our faith to try to take this country down a very dark path, the, the same path Jesus was speaking out against in Luke 19. And that first Palm Sunday, Jesus did not stay silent and allow that to happen. He rode into the center of conflict. He rode in peacefully. He didn't ride in with the intention of, of creating more conflict. He rode in peacefully, speaking out for what he believed. The, the, the real version of his faith that promoted love of neighbor and the goodness of God and justice and righteousness. Jesus spoke out. And if we are to be followers of Jesus, we will speak out with him. Now, we're going to take communion together now. We want to live in union with Jesus as he spoke out. And I believe Jesus wants to speak out through us. And we want to experience union with him and with our neighbors that he calls us to love. And so if you'd like to take communion with us now, I invite you to get a piece of bread and a beverage. And uh, wherever you are, you're invited to take communion with us. The, the way we say it here at the well, you don't have to be a member of the well in order to, to take communion uh, with us. You, uh, and obviously that would be hard over the internet anyway to even know who's taking communion with us. But if you want to sign off on these values we're talking about, the way of Jesus here, well, then I think you're on team Jesus and, and you are more than welcome to take communion with us. So have that piece of bread and a drink ready. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, just a few days later after he rode into the city of Jerusalem peacefully, the night he was betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples and he took bread and he thanked God for it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. Let's consume the bread. Jesus spoke out even though it cost him even though his body was broken for it. In the same way, he took the cup. He thanked God for it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. Let's drink from the cup. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, thank you that we get to join together wherever we are right now in this act of unity with Jesus, to experience union with you in communion, to say, Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to live in union with you. We want uh, Jesus to follow you and speak out the way that you spoke out. When what you believed was being manipulated and, and distorted by people who were, who were using it for political ends, you spoke out. You didn't walk away. You didn't give up. You didn't make a calculation and say, well, it'll just be too painful for me and, and decide to stay silent. You did not stay quiet. Jesus, you spoke up. 
and you did something about it. And we thank you as followers of Jesus that the appropriate thing to pray is, Jesus, we worship you. And we thank you and we want to follow your lead. We want to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow you. And speak up for what is right in a time of rising Christian nationalism, even if it costs us something. And it likely will. For some of us, it's already cost us some relationships. We hope that it doesn't cost us physically. It's cost us emotionally. For some, even perhaps financially. But some of us here, God, that are, that are watching right now, it, it's already cost us. And we're thankful for those of us who have been willing to follow Jesus and speak out even though it costs them something. For those of us who were on the fence and we've been feeling pressure over the past several years to stay quiet. And there have been really well-meaning phrases used to try to get us to, to sweep these things under the rug. These really, really horrifying and thing, things that we know that are wrong. They're said and we, we feel pressure to just ignore it or brush it under the rug and think, well, let's just, let's just try to pretend you know, we can get past that and we'll just kind of keep the peace with these people. And Well, there's a difference between loving our neighbors and being complicit in lies and violence and this militant perversion of Christianity that is gaining traction in the United States. God, give us the courage to hear the words of Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Don't let us be swayed by, by good-sounding arguments that really just keep us quiet. Help us, Jesus, to experience union with you and to follow you and to speak out the way that you speak out. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,